you make your way back to your seat, and we're going to jump into God's Word together. Nobody's listening to me. You're all just having conversations. Clinton's with me. Oh, there, make me echoier. Then people will listen. You can make your way back, and uh, we're going to jump into God's Word together if we haven't met. My name is Brent Smith, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and we're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we've been working our way through this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth for a few months now, when it's been you and I. And so we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to read 12 to 17, so the last couple paragraphs of chapter 2. And it'll be up on the screen as well. All right. So why don't I pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So Father, we're so thankful for you and what you've already done, what you've already done uh, through your presence in our hearts and encouraging us, and challenging us, and bringing freedom, and so we just praise you for it. We just ask that you continue to do the same as we look at your word. As we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would work in us, and we thank you that your spirit just doesn't give good, or your word doesn't just give good advice or good wisdom, your word brings life. And so we pray for life this morning, that we would have eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts to understand uh, what you want to say to us through your word this morning. So come by your spirit. Give us revelation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. So Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity and commi as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so I want to talk to you this morning about an open door and a restless spirit. An open door and a restless spirit. So since the start of the letter, we've really seen this tension between the Apostle Paul and the church of Corinth that he planted. Uh, some of the people there in Corinth had actually turned on Paul and his apostolic oversight, and they'd laid accusations against him and so on. Uh, the whole, there was this whole thing about Paul changing his travel plans, and that really got them upset. And, uh, and then Paul also talks about these, these teachers that have come into the church. Later, he'll refer to them as the super apostles. Quite a hilarious title that Paul gives them that have come in and kind of further driven that wedge between this church and Paul and continuing to lead the people away from Paul. And at the first of chapter 2, uh, Paul tells them that his motivations for all that he's done has been 
out of love. That yes, he didn't come, but he did write a letter. The letter had some weight and some sharpness to it, uh, but it was all about trying to bring them to repentance and bring restoration between him and the church. And then in verse 5 of chapter 2, the last time we looked at 2 Corinthians, you remember there's this guy who the church who got into something we don't really know and the church had kind of put him out and Paul's saying, come on, he's repented. You've got to bring him back in. You've got to bring him back in part of the community. And so all through Paul's ministry with the Corinthians, there have been these kind of suffering milestones, we'll call them, these hardship milestones. His work with the church in Corinth is just marked by hardship and trials and setbacks and difficulties and roadblocks and detours. And really, when you look at Paul's mission and his evangelism and his church planting, uh, it kind of reads like an episode of Wipeout, right? So if you've ever seen Wipeout, it's like Paul's kind of scooting along the e some little ledge, and then all of a sudden, bam, a fist pops out of the wall and punches him in the face, or he just gets settled on a platform, and then the platform starts spinning and throws him off. It's always over and over and over. It's just these trials, setbacks. Oh, I thought this was going good, but now this has happened, and now that's happened. And meanwhile, the stars of the show kind of stand off at a distance and mock and jeer. But Paul just continues. He's perseverant. He continues on towards the prize that is set before him. He's not deterred from pressing on toward the finish line. And so we read, we can read all these amazing things that Paul experienced in his life, these visions of Jesus and third heaven, whatever in the world that is, probably not in the world, but anyway, and, and we kind of get this kind of glamorized view of Paul's ministry. And so it's important for us to see these suffering milestones in Paul's work. He went through some really tough stuff. And so we read it and we say, oh, you know, he's just like me. His life is hard, just like my life is hard. He's got relationship difficulties, just like I've got relationship difficulties. He had pain and suffering, just like I have pain and suffering. And over and over we see it. And it's no different here when we get to verse 12 of chapter 2. So Paul had written the letter to Corinth, and he's kind of anxious about whether it had further driven them apart or whether it had worked to bring restoration. And so he knew it was a bit of a, a sharp letter, a severe letter, he calls it. And so he sends his buddy Titus down to Corinth to bring a report back of how they had received that letter. And so now he waits. And it's like it's a bit like when you send maybe a friend, a text, and you know maybe it was a little bit sharp, but you knew it needed to be said, and then you just kind of wait for the response, and you see delivered, right? And then it changes to read, and then you get those three dots. They just bounce on and on forever, just bouncing ominously on your heart over and over. And that's where Paul is right now. He's in the three-dot stage. He's just like... What is the response going to be from the church in Corinth? What are they going to say? Are they going to say, forget your letter and you're gone out of here? Or are they going to say, yes, we see what you're saying. We want to be joined up with you. We want to pursue restoration. And so Paul is in that waiting stage. How did they receive the message? What will the report back be? And while he waits, Paul heads to Troas to preach the gospel. And when he gets there, 
wow, he gets an open door to the gospel. So God just gives his favor, there's opportunity, and he's just preaching the gospel. He's seeing a lot of fruit from that. He's seeing a lot of salvations. People are getting saved. And even in the midst of this open door for ministry, Paul says that his spirit is not at rest. He has a restless spirit. Something is unsettling inside of him. Despite all the fruit that he's seeing, despite this open door of opportunity, there's just something that is not quite right. His soul isn't at peace. And why isn't his soul at peace? Because Titus isn't there with the report of how the church at Corinth is doing. You can just kind of picture Paul preaching in Troas, and he's just kind of got one eye on the city gate, just kind of waiting for Titus to stroll in anytime. So he's preaching, but he's just like, Titus, where are you? I want to know what's going on in Corinth. Jesus saved. Where's Titus, right? That's kind of where we see Paul here in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. And so, then you need to see what Paul says. He says, at the end of 13, he says, so he's got this open door, right? Open door for the gospel. He's got a restless spirit. And then at the end of 13, he says, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So we need to pause here and catch this, okay? So even though he had this amazing door for the gospel in Troas, his heart was so troubled with the situation in Corinth, he decided not to stay, but to keep on moving to Macedonia, where he might meet Titus on his way back from Corinth. So Paul found himself in this situation where on one side he's got an open door for the gospel, he's seeing God work, He's seeing God do some amazing things. But on the other side, he has this stirring in his spirit to move on elsewhere. He had an amazing door open to him for ministry, but his soul is not at rest. Okay? Do we need you see that? We can't read too fast past that because it's, it's pretty startling. And we can think, what are you doing, Paul? Like, if, we had a, if, we, if ever we were in a situation where we said, I went to this city to preach the gospel and God just gave me an amazing open door for ministry, then we do not expect the next sentence to be, so I packed up and left for Moncton, right? Right? So we need to see just how startling it is that Paul would say that. And so maybe for some of you this morning, you find yourself in a similar spot. And when you look around at your life and the things you're involved in and the things you're doing, you see that there's not much work to do there's plenty of people to care for. There's plenty of people that need Jesus. And maybe you even see some opening doors that God is opening up some opportunities. But all the time in the midst of that, you've got this stirring, this unrest in your spirit. And maybe you feel God's calling you on to something else despite the open door before you. And so when we read this, we need to ask ourselves, are we at rest despite all the opportunities around us despite all the open doors before us for god's kingdom do we have a restless spirit i'm not talking about you being uncomfortable because you know your job's not paying enough and your house isn't big enough and everyone's not catering to you enough i'm not even talking about god's spirit kind of stirring in you and bringing conviction of sin i'm talking about god stirring in you just an unrest. God's stirring in you by His Spirit to move. Not necessarily a, a geographical 
move, not necessarily a career move, but a, it could be those things, but a stirring in your spirit that you know God is calling you to move from where you are to a new place. A little story from Karen and I's life. Karen and I's? Yeah, I don't know how you say it. From the life of the Smiths. So as many of you know, Karen and I worked at Green Lake Camp for several years when we were first married. And uh, Karen was the personnel director and I was the, the site manager. And living in a tiny apartment with paper-thin walls, uh, working 24 hours a day and being the pseudo-parents to 60 teenagers is not really the advice we give to most newlyweds. Uh, but, it, but it worked out all right for us and we, uh, we enjoyed it for the five years that we were there. But in the summer of 2010, we began to feel that stirring. We had this unrest in our hearts. And when we looked around at what we were doing, we saw lots of opportunity. We saw lots of open doors. Uh, we had a great influence on the hundreds of kids that passed through the camp every summer. Uh, we had an opportunity to have a big impact and influence on the staff that were there. Uh, a lot of teenagers, a lot of college students. Uh, we even had an avenue where you could impact a lot of churches and a lot of youth groups out from that. And so we saw lots of opportunity. We saw lots of open doors. But at the same time, we had this stirring, this unrest in our spirit. And there was a growing sense that it was time to take leave and head to Macedonia ourselves. And even though we didn't really know what that would look like. So in the fall of 2010, I talked to Steve, the director there at the camp, and I let him know that, that this was taking place, and we decided to put in our resignation, which ended January 2011. And some people didn't understand. Some people were confused. Uh, some people questioned it. Uh, if they didn't at first, they did when we said we didn't have anything lined up on the other end uh, to move into. Uh, but... By God's grace, we knew that not knowing where we were going wasn't a reason to stay where we were. Does that make sense? And so we had this stirring in our hearts that God was moving us on. And we didn't have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but we knew that it was time to move. And it's one of the hardest decisions that we've ever made, I think, as a married couple. We haven't ranked them. We don't have a list, but it's probably near the top. But it's a decision that eventually led us to here. And so uh, we're thankful that we made that decision. So do you find yourself in a similar spot this morning? And you look around where you are and you see lots of opportunity. You see plenty of need. You see open doors where God could use you in big ways. And yet you're restless. And you feel maybe this morning caught between an open door and a restless spirit and you're wondering what the right thing is to do and it's not an easy question to answer is it it's not an easy question to answer it wasn't easy for us I suspect it wasn't easy for Paul either because in chapter 7 he talks about arriving in Macedonia and having fighting without and fears within so he arrives in Macedonia kind of in an inner turmoil he doesn't know if he made 
the right decision. He's probably walking up to Macedonia thinking, Paul, what are you doing? You just left an open door. There were people getting saved every time you preached, and you just hightailed it out of there. In one sense, it's a lot easier to uh, preach on things that are more clear and straightforward, right? Things that are a bit more concrete, you know? Uh, prayer. This is why it's important and this is why you should do it. God's love. Here's some things about God's love and how it moves us, right? But when we get to subjective things, things that don't have a clear right and wrong, it's a bit harder. It wasn't like I was flipping through the Bible one day at Green Hill and I got to a verse that said, Jesus stood up in the multitude and with a loud voice said, Brent and Karen, leave Green Hill Lake, right? There wasn't a verse that I found about that. And so, we, you know, you could ask us, you know, should you have left Green Hill? That's a hard question to answer. But we do know that we've seen God do some amazing things since then. We've seen God grow us and mature us since then. We've seen God plant us here. And we can say that the only restless spirit we have is to see more of God move in this church and more of God to move in this city, right? And so... Maybe you find yourself in a similar spot today. Open door, restless spirit. And if so, I can't tell you which to follow, but I can point you to the three things that Paul points us to here after describing this situation. And hopefully they'll be of benefit to you this morning. And so first, I want to show you about the worship of Paul. The worship of Paul. Look what he says in verse 14. He starts, but thanks be to God. And so Paul's breaking out here in a worship, uh, in a worship scene. Paul thinks back on this moment, the difficulty of the situation, the turmoil between him and the Corinthians, the inner struggle of leaving that open door in Troas. And he says, but thanks be to God. So he worships. He worships in the midst of, of his difficulties. He pushes past his hurt feelings, pushes past his difficult situation, and even though he might not feel like it, he worships. And so we need to learn to worship even when we don't feel like it. We need to learn to worship even when we don't feel like it. From a very human perspective, Paul had ample reason not to praise God, not to thank God. He had all this stuff going on externally. He had pressure and unrest and anxiety going on internally, but Paul doesn't look at things by a mere human perspective. He rises above it, gets the bird's eye view, and from a God perspective, he rises in worship to God. He sees the top-down, bigger picture and proclaims, thanks be to God. And so what is the bigger picture that causes Paul to rise up in thanksgiving and praise. Look at what he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ. And so here is Paul coming back to that Christ central worldview that we've been beating on about through the first two, two chapters, right? Here's Paul coming back to in Christ. It's that Christ central worldview. So in this difficult situation, Paul immediately reminds himself that the foundational truth that no matter the circumstances, he is in Christ. He's grabbing hold of the truth that difficulty 
doesn't affect his identity, right? That difficulty in life does not affect his identity in Christ. And this is so foundational for us, that as Christians, the difficulty we experience in this life does not affect our identity in Christ. And it sounds so simple on a Sunday morning after we've had a great time of worship, but oftentimes when the rubber meets the road, we're face-to-face with a difficult situation. Those are the things that begin to slip away of who we are in Christ, the hope that we have in Him, our identity in Him. All those things start to fall away. We need to remind ourselves that whenever we're in crisis, we're also in Christ in the midst of that crisis, right? So when we're in crisis, Paul says, remember, you're also in Christ in the midst of that crisis. So the Bible never tells us to ignore the difficulty or pretend the hardship isn't there. Instead, the gospel comes and gives you bigger truths things that are more real, things that are more weighty than any hardship or difficulty you might encounter and tells you to focus on those things that you can rise above above that crisis and remind yourself that you're in Christ. Thanks be to God, I'm in Christ. Can you say that this morning? Thanks be to God, I am in Christ. And then look what he says. He says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. What does that mean, eh? So Paul is referencing here a practice of the Romans, of the Roman army. And, uh, and what they would do is the generals coming back from war, the common practice was to have a parade through the city and it was full of pomp and revelry and there's chariots and horses and banners and musicians playing and priests burning incense. And it was a big party through the city. And then right in the midst of all of that would be the captives, the prisoners of war. And they'd be led and paraded through the city, a testament to the power of the conquering general, right? And so probably the closest equivalent today would be the Super Bowl parade. And so... Uh, This year, the Patriots won. I'm doing this illustration just for you, Hugh. The Patriots won. I can give this illustration. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) Through much pain and prayer. Here we go. So the Patriots won the Super Bowl. A few days later, they parade through Boston in their duck boats. And there's confetti. And there's singing. And there's dancing. Gronkowski's got his shirt off. It's a big party. And that's probably the closest equivalent that we would have today. So now picture in the midst of that. This is just going to put Hugh over the top. Right in the midst of that, in between the duck boats, are the Atlanta Falcons, the losing team. And they're parading through the city with their heads down, a testament to the power and the greatness of Bill Belichick. Are you happy with me, Hugh? Our friendship just went like from here to like up here. Try to stay focused, okay? There you go. But it puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? And so what Paul, what is Paul painting at, or what is Paul getting at by painting 
this picture. And so this verse has been interpreted a few different ways through history. One way says that we're leading the parade. This parade is our parade, that in Christ we triumph, and so we're kind of the general at the front of the army, and this parade is our parade. Another view would say that we are the soldiers being led by our good general in triumphant celebration that our enemies have been conquered. Paul here is a soldier alongside other soldiers, and with all the war imagery in the Bible, it's not a hard picture for us to imagine, right? We can just picture ourselves marching along, singing Onward Christian Soldiers, or I'm in the Lord's Army, right? If you didn't grow up in the church in the 90s, you really missed out. <laughs> it was really the only time when it was acceptable to pretend to shoot a machine gun in church. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Jerusha's with me. Yep. It was kind of a nice reward for suffering through climb, climb up Sunshine Mountain <laughs> as an eight-year-old boy. So we are the triumphant general or we are the conquering soldiers. Still others have taken the view that we are the conquered rebels, that we are the conquered rebels, that Jesus' triumphant procession is a triumph over us, that all Christians are, in a sense, conquered by God at conversion. We were rebels against him, but we've been conquered by his love and are now, in a sense, captive to his grace. That puts a different spin when you read he leads us in triumphant procession, doesn't it? So what do we make of all this? Well, the most probable interpretation is one that recognizes the paradox in Paul's use of this picture. And Paul Barnett explains it this way. He says, there is a paradox here as implied by the metaphor led captive in triumph, which points at the same moment to the victory of a conquering general and the humiliation of his captives marching to execution. The metaphor is at the same time triumphal and anti-triumphal. It is as God leads his servants as prisoners of war in a victory parade that God spreads the knowledge of Christ everywhere through them. Whereas in such victory processions, the prisoners would be dejected and embittered. From this captive's lips come only thanksgiving to God, his captor. Here is restated the power and weakness theme that pervades the letter. So Paul is again showing us this paradoxical life of a Christian, that we've been conquered by Jesus, but as his captors, we're not walking through the city like this. We're rejoicing and celebrating that we've been conquered as rebels against God. That we're a bunch of thankful, joyfully conquered rebels praising our captors for defeating us and bringing us into his triumph. You see, when we enjoy success and triumph and when everything seems to be going well, we can feel like victorious soldiers parading through the city. It's easy to worship God. Let's shout, let's sing, let's rejoice in that. Because it's easy to rejoice in success. It's easy to sing and shout praises to God when we enjoy victory at every corner. But it's also dangerous ground because very subtly we can find ourselves no longer worshiping God, but only worshiping our success. It's not our great salvation that moves us anymore, only 
our success. When Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, was dying of cancer, one of his friends and former associates asked him, how are you managing to bear up? You have been accustomed to preaching several times a week. You have begun important Christian enterprises. Your influence has extended through tapes and books to Christians on five continents, and now you have been put on the shelf. You are reduced to sitting quietly, sometimes managing a little editing. I am not so much asking, therefore, how you are coping with the disease itself. Rather, how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things? And Lloyd-Jones looked at him and responded, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So where are you at this morning? Who is the object of your worship? And what causes you to rejoice? Your acceptance in Christ or your success before others? Second, Paul wants us to look not only at our worship, but as our, at our witness as well. To do that, he gives us another picture. And look at what he says at the end of verse 14. He says, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So Paul is kind of continuing the, the Roman march picture because as part of the triumphant procession, the priests used to come and burn incense, mostly to cover the smell of filthy, half-dead soldiers. But anyways, uh, but it also ties into the Old Testament sacrifice as well and the odor that it says goes up to God and is a pleasing aroma to him. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks of Jesus being a fragrant offering as he gave up his life. And so in the same way, Paul's saying that as we're captive to God, as we give up our lives to him, we become a fragrant offering. And so as Paul traveled around, faithful to God in the midst of suffering, preaching the gospel at every opportunity, the knowledge of Christ emanates from him. It just wafts out of him the knowledge of Christ to those around him. And don't you just love Paul's imagery here? He's telling us that there is an emotional and spiritual response to knowing Jesus that is similar to having a good smell come and fill your nostrils. To the delight we have of smelling something good. And smell is a powerful sense. Research shows that smell is more closely related to memories and to emotions more than any other of our senses. And so that's why you can be walking through the mall and you smell, you get a whiff of brute aftershave and you're reminded of sitting on your grandfather's lap, right? It just triggers memories. We remember coming home from school your mom's baking chocolate chip cookies. You can smell those things and you get off the bus as an eight-year-old boy, right? You're like a German shepherd on the canine unit. You're just like, I think there's chocolate chip cookies at home, right? Maybe it's not chocolate chip cookies. Maybe it's Christmas turkey or sawdust. I like the smell of sawdust, cedar sawdust. I worked in a cedar mill for a few years. You smell that. Whatever it might be, I was getting off track. 
whatever it might be. We love good smells, don't we? We love good smells. And Paul is telling us here that knowing Jesus smells good. Knowing Jesus smells good. And look at what he says. He says, we send out an aroma as we remain faithful to our commission from God. We send out an aroma, but that aroma may be a smell of life to some, and it also may be a smell of death to others. As we live faithfully to God, as we tell others about Jesus, to some it may be a delicious, pleasing smell of life, and to others it might be a suffocating stench of death. Growing up, I remember my mom bought this scented candle, and she lit it, and it was like a like a perfumey smell, like lavender or something, and she lit it, and my dad was like, oh, I can't breathe, blow it out. <laughs> to, to some, it was a beautiful smell of life. To my dad, it was a suffocating stench of death. <laughs> and so is the same when we live our lives faithfully for Jesus, when we tell others about Jesus. To some, it's a beautiful, sweet fragrance. To others, it's a stench that is repulsive. It's the same candle, very different responses. But we need to see that no matter how we smell to others, first and foremost, we are a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. Verse 15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God. And we saw in Ephesians that that's a fragrant offering, the aroma of Christ. We are first the sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ to God. As we live faithfully to God, he smells that sweet, fragrant offering of Christ. So no matter how the message is received by others, we are still fragrant to God. And so for us as a church, we just need to hit the e-brake there, right? Because a few weeks ago, Mark preached about sowing the seeds, right? And he talked about we just throw the seeds, we, we uh, leave the results to God, right? And then Reese came last week, not knowing what Mark had preached, and he preached about tossing the seeds, that God is more pleased with our courage than our success, right? And so then we're doing a different book. We're on our own timeline, a book written by a different author. There's a different preacher. And then the very next week we get, you're a fragrant offering to God as you live faithfully to him, but the responses are going to be varied. But don't keep your eyes fixed on the responses Keep your eyes fixed on living faithfully to God. So maybe we need to let that sink in, that God seems to want to drive that home in us as a church. You see that? It is right there. I'm not, I'm not twisting it to make it say something it's not saying. It's right there. You're a fragrant offering of life to some, of death to others, but you're a fragrance, a sweet-smelling fragrance to God first and foremost. Success in God's eyes is measured by faithfulness, not fruit. And it's important for us because in this digital age when it's so easy to know what's going on with others, it can be very tempting to begin to measure our success by how we line up with others, right? But we need to come back to the truth of God's word that says success is faithfulness, not fruit. 
true success is us faithfully sharing the good news of Jesus, not how many people accept the message. So when in the midst of suffering and hardship we proclaim the gospel of Jesus and we are mocked and Jesus is rejected, we smell good to God. And when in the midst of suffering and hardship we proclaim the same gospel and Jesus is embraced and loved, we smell good to God. So maybe this morning God's beginning to tear down that illusion that you've been holding on to that says your worth to God is measured by how much you produce for him. And God wants to bust you out of that way of thinking this morning. And maybe you've been making every effort to and striving to smell good before the world. And God wants to put a declaration in your heart that even if the world thinks I smell putrid, my, my purpose is to smell, be a sweet fragrance to God. Lastly, we need to see the weight of it all. Because being this aroma that Paul has told us divides the world, some to life, some to death, is a big weight. And so when Reese said last week that our job is to share the gospel and leave the results to God, and we know that failure is going to come along with that, it's, it's kind of uh, takes your breath away when you realize that the failure just isn't a, oh shucks, that didn't work out, but is a fragrance of death to death. Right? We're not, we're not playing games. This is life and death. The good news of Jesus and accepting that good news is about life and it's about death. And so when we see that, our immediate question is, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to live this way? And Paul tells us, just a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. And so many times we read that question, who is sufficient for these things? And we answer like we think a good, humble Christian should. Not me, I'm not sufficient. But in the context, it's clear Paul is expecting us to answer in the positive. Who is sufficient for these things? We are sufficient for these things because Christ is in us. Because God has made us competent. Because our sufficiency comes from Him. Not in ourselves, but in God. And so maybe that, maybe last week you got, uh, we had a great time after the message last Sunday if you weren't here and many people were prayed for and there was a real uh, stream of praying for people to be specifically empowered and encouraged and have opportunities in the area of evangelism and a new power to be a witness for Jesus in your workplaces and in your schools, uh, whatever it might be. And it was great, you know, wow, what an amazing time together. The only problem is the meeting ended. And the only problem is your alarm clock went off Monday morning and you actually had to go to work. And you actually had to go to the schools. And some of us, I feel, just need to say to ourselves this morning, I have been made competent by God 
to carry this weight, to be a witness for him and fulfill the mission that he has called me to do. God is not only with me, he is for me. And you know what? He might give me more than I can handle, but he's not going to give me more than he can handle. And he has made me sufficient for these things. And so it doesn't matter if I'm a school teacher or an electrician or a geologist or a stay-at-home mom or an engineer or a middle school student. I am made sufficient for these things because of Christ. And it's through him I can work out his purposes and plans in my life. And so we need to see that that having Christ at the center, that we're in Christ, we can rise above these hardships, we can worship. You might be here this morning, you've got that open door, you've got that restless spirit, and you're trying to weigh all these things out. Weigh these things out. Who is your source of your worship? Is it your success and how you're viewed before others? Or is it the fact that you're accepted in Christ? Consider your witness are you more concerned about being sweet smelling to the world or is your focus on being a sweet fragrance to god are you crushed down feeling you're insufficient for these things how can god use me in this way i feel a stirring in my spirit but how could i ever go and do that what about this what about that and jesus wants to say i've made you sufficient i've made you confident i've made you confident as you rely and trust in me let's pray father we know that you started something this morning during worship and we pray that through your word you've continued it on you've continued to speak to us you've continued to uh, just cause your spirit to work in us and loosen us and stir us And we just want to put our full trust in you this morning. And we pray now as we uh, sing this song, as we rise up again in worship to you, we just pray, Father, that you'd you'd finish what what you started. Your word says that you uh, carry things on to completion. And so we just pray, Father, for a completed work this morning. And we know that there's other chapters to be written, but I just pray... For anyone here that feels they're before this open door and they can see how you'd use them in many ways where they're at, but yet they have this stirring, we just pray as we look at your word, as we rise up and worship to you, we pray, Father, you'd give them clarity, you'd give them courage, you'd give them confidence in you to follow you where you're taking them. In Jesus' name, amen.